This is Other Voices. We're listening to varied views from local people who might otherwise not be heard. I'm Melissa Hale Spencer, editor of the Altamont Enterprise, which focuses on Albany County, New York. You can reach me at mhs at altamontenterprise.com. I'm talking to Christine Galvin of New Scotland. She helps abused and neglected children as young as five who have fled their homelands in hopes of building a better life in the United States. A lawyer who speaks Spanish, Galvin has spent up to a thousand hours each year for more than five years working for free to help them. Her travels in South America, along with her legal career, primarily representing injured people, has prepared Galvin for her current retirement work. She's used to helping people through some of the worst times of their lives, offering steadfast resolve as well as legal expertise. She is familiar to our readers because of her many years of activity in New Scotland, but that's not what we're talking about today. We're talking today about the legal project. And I'd like to just start, Christine, if you could tell us what what is the legal project? Sure. Well, so the legal project is is a nonprofit organization that was started in 1990, I believe. <clears throat> Or it could have been 1999. Let me just, I'm going to double check. 1995, it was founded. Thank you. I looked it up by the Capital District Women's Bar Association. Yes. And um, its mission is really to provide access to justice for everyone, but in particular, people who cannot really afford to pay for legal services. It has a number of programs. probably 10 or 11 different programs within which it provides services, legal services. And I read on your website that it's, it especially addresses people who on paper don't qualify. In other words, there must be a large number of people that are not technically below the poverty line and therefore can't get certain services. Is that right? But yet they don't have enough money to, um, you know, to engage a lawyer for, for all kinds of reasons. Yes, that's correct. You know, there's just a part of society that doesn't necessarily qualify because they just are not poor enough, Um, but they're not wealthy enough to pay the kind of fees that attorneys need to charge in their practices. So this, kind of fills in the gap, this organization. Yeah, that's interesting to to me because, you know, we think these social safety net programs take care of poor people, but here there's this whole group that that doesn't doesn't qualify. So, Yes, and I have to say, too, that um, there are some of the services that are provided by the legal project um, you don't have to pay anything for. it, 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 there might be some where you might have to contribute something depending on your income, but um, for the most part, the kind of work I do, none of my clients um, pay for the legal services. It's all pro bono, meaning free. Wow. Well, yeah, and the services that you offer at the Legal Project are so diverse. I mean, there's everything from domestic violence help to homeowner protection 
to campus violence. So it, it runs the gamut. That's, that's a lot of lawyers who are willing to give up, you know, their usual pay to help people. So what motivated you to do this? Um, how did you get involved in this? Well, I, I happen to speak Spanish, and I'm a lawyer. So for many years, um, when I was in private practice, I would do pro bono work. I would represent um, Hispanics, Latinos with, with a variety of different types of things. In any event, um, that was not my specialty in terms of practice. But in any event, um, when the time came for me to retire, which was almost six years ago, I was interested in helping undocumented immigrant children. So I, I reached out to an immigration attorney that I know in Albany, and he suggested that I contact actually initially Albany Law School, which I did, and I started providing assistance there. And then um, the, the law school stopped doing the types of cases that I was working on, and all that work moved to the legal project. And I've been volunteering with the legal project at this point for over five years. But I do a very specialized type of work for them. I so I'd like to, before you delve into that, I want to hear about, oh, that's the center of this podcast, what you're doing now. But let's just back up a little. How is it that you came to speak Spanish? Where, where did that, where did well, you learn I, that? Well, I, I studied it throughout grade school and high school, like many of us do. Um, but I spent my junior year of college in Valencia, Spain. And then I I enrolled in a in a master's program with SUNY Stony Brook in Spanish, which brought me to Colombia, Medellin, Colombia, South America, where I and I spent a year in South America. So subsequent to that, as I continued to represent from time to time Latino people uh, providing them with pro bono services. I've continued to speak Spanish, and I speak a lot of it today. <laughs> wow. Tell us about your year in Colombia. What was that like? What were you doing there? Well, <clears throat> my year in Colombia was um, fortunate because it was just after a very <clears throat> violent um, period of time in Colombia called the violence, actually called that. And I worked at a um, textile firm, and I also attended the their state university there. Um, I did that for about six months, and after that, <clears throat> I spent the next six months traveling in Colombia, Ecuador, and Peru. Wow, you were really an adventurer. <laughs> that's, that's quite something. So can we back up further? I'd just like to hear how you got this kind of adventurous spirit. What, what was your family like growing up? Where, where are you from originally? I'm from uh, Rochester, New York, a suburb called um, Rondequite. And I was just a, a regular kid in a subdivision. Um, well, I think uh, living in Spain, which I at the time that I lived there, uh, Franco was a dictator. That was a real experience. 
to. Yeah, tell us about that. Well, <laughs> it was a very repressed country at the time. It was Spain was this was in 1974, 1975. Spain was pretty much a third world European country. And um, well, it was dominated by police, military, etc. It was uh, a Catholic country. That was the um, the uh, country's religion. Um, there was no permitted birth control. Children born out of wedlock had no status in society. <laughs> it was an interesting experience. Um, you could not speak out against um, the dictator at any time where you would risk being arrested. Um, at my at the University of Valencia, which I attended, um, students uh, uh, demonstrated on one occasion and riot police arrived and, of course, all kinds of bad things ensued. So it was that type of environment. And, wow. So is this part of what led you to become a lawyer? What 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 led you towards the law? When did that happen? Um, that was a very happenstance. I, I became friendly with uh, another lawyer who had just graduated from Albany Law School. At that time, I was working for two language schools teaching Spanish and um, looking to go in a different direction. And he recommended to me that I consider law school, and I followed that recommendation. Oh, wow. <laughs> and tell us about um, your years as a lawyer. What what did your practice consist of? Um, my practice primarily consisted of representing injured people. So I was a plaintiff's personal injury attorney, also known as a trial attorney, although today there aren't very many trials anymore because most cases are resolved by settlement or, or mediation or arbitration. But I represented people injured in all different kinds of ways. That was my main focus, but I also did different types of litigation, including um, employment litigation, labor-type matters, commercial litigation, things like that. So you're used to dealing with people kind of at the worst time in their lives. If you, you know, would take on these cases of people who were injured, um, how, how does that play into what you're doing now? Because I, I guess the people you're representing now are really kind of in difficult situations. Tell us about who who these children are that you're helping. So... These are children who are under the age of 21, and they they may have been successful in crossing uh, the U.S. border, typically from Mexico, without being um, caught, or they may have been arrested at the border. Either way, um, they uh, all of the children I represent have been victims of abuse, neglect, or abandonment by a parent. And um, they are all ages. I, I have children that are five years old, 10 years old, but the majority of them are teenagers. And, and many of them come all by themselves 
but they might know somebody here. They might know a family member. If they are arrested at the border, they're placed in a, <coughs> a facility um, that is operated by the Office of Refugee Resettlement, during which they have to be cared for, and that office attempts to find a sponsor to whom they can release the child. Um, many of my clients do have family members in the United States and are released to the care of those family members pending their uh, deportation proceedings. Um, the clients that are not arrested at the border, um, they make their way in amazing trips to um, all kinds of ways to wherever their goal is, wherever they want to locate. And my clients are located in many counties in the area. I have clients in Washington County, uh, Rensselaer County, Albany County, Saratoga County, um, Columbia County, Greene County, uh, Montgomery County, and, and beyond. And um, many of them do work. Um, they work primarily in restaurants. And, um, and I represent them because they qualify for something called special immigrant juvenile status, which is a, a status that was created by Congress to provide assistance to these children who have been victims, basically, of their parents. And, um, and so as long as they're under 21 and they are unmarried and, and they have this victim status, and it is, it's not possible for them to be reunited with a parent because of the parent's um, abandonment, abuse, neglect, um, and it is not in their best interest to be returned to their country of origin, they qualify for special immigrant juvenile status, which is, which is the first step in the road, basically, to citizenship. Um, initially, I file a petition in a local court, typically family court or surrogate's court, for uh, requesting that the court appoint a guardian for the child and requesting that the court issue an order establishing the child's eligibility for special immigrant juvenile status. From there, I, I have to apply to U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services for that status. If they are from a country where visas are available right away to apply for permanent residency, I can simultaneously file a petition for work authorization and permanent residency. But those are countries that I don't have very many clients from, such as Colombia, Ecuador, Venezuela. But most of my clients come from Central America and Mexico. And there are very long waiting lines for visas for permanent residency. So typically for people from Mexico and Central America, I initially petition for special immigrant juvenile status. And when that's granted, I can then petition for work authorization for them. And after that, they may have to wait a number of years in order to apply for permanent residency which is what is often referred to as the green card. 
And after being a permanent resident for five years, they can apply for citizenship. So it's a very long road over several years. Um, but and do you do you stay with the same client every step of the way on this very long road? You you know you're there from wow. So you must really get to know them very well over over this period of time. Yeah. Um, I'd just like to go back and unpack some of the things you said because I was not aware, and I bet many of our listeners weren't either, of this special immigrant juvenile status that the the children you're working with have been victims in their homes from their own parents. And um, so that puts them in this other category. so do they typically just on their own at a young age um, leave? And what means do they have to make it to the United States border? I mean, do you have any sort of stories you can share about that? Well, um, the primary motivation for my clients to come to the United States is to, to find work to send money home to support their families. All my clients really um, come from backgrounds of extreme poverty. So um, most of them are boys. Most of them, uh, they just want to come here and work. They live in not very good um, living arrangements here in the United States very inexpensive limiting arrangements so that they can send money home. And most of them are motivated to come here because, or a great deal of them, because either their, their, their parent is beating them, which is not uncommon, or uh, very typical, their father has abandoned them and the family, um, even while the child was at a very young age. And, um, the child has had to go out and work on farms, could be at the age of 11, 12, 13, uh, leave school, um, weed, pick, pick bananas, coffee, or whatever. But they barely make enough money to survive, and many don't have enough food or places to live. There are other children that live uh, in um, dangerous areas. One in particular that comes to mind is <clears throat> the Triqui region, which is in the state of Oaxaca in Mexico. And that region has a lot of violence. There's a lot of um, uh, the Triqui people are, there, are indigenous. They have their own language and culture. There's a lot of um, political uh, disputes and violence that go on there, and there's a lot of drug trafficking violence. So um, I have several clients whose parents have been murdered there. Oh, my gosh. I, I just wonder how, where do you draw your strength? You must be taking on, you know, not just the legal aspects, which I'm sure you're very capable with, but just emotionally dealing you know, with children who's who've been beaten or whose parents are murdered. I mean, um, ha, what do you draw on to do this work? 
Well, I, I think you brought it up, maybe because I've had a lot of practice representing um, injured people. Um, I don't know. I'm not really sure. These children are really brave. You know, they don't complain. And I don't know. We just uh, carry forward. You know, we just work through it. All of their stories are really sad. I can't. I know you, you probably cannot share any names, but could you just tell us like one one person's story, so something we can have to hold on to the story of one of these children? I I just I'm getting emotional just hearing about it, and I'm not dealing with them every day, you know, the way you are. Oh, let me think. I I think that. The saddest stories are the ones with the parents who have been murdered, you know. Um, these children, um, they really have nothing. So you have to picture living in a very small village, maybe in the mountains. Um, they don't have any means of transportation, really. They walk everywhere. I had one client that was walking from a funeral in the Treaky area in Mexico with his family, and they were ambushed, the whole family. Luckily, um, they all survived, the children and the mother, but the father was murdered. Well, so by the time they got home, um, they had to deal with all that, but shortly after that, I think it was like within a month, the grandmother got murdered. So, So that's a lot to take, and now this family ends up and this happens frequently, they end up with no one to support them. You know, women in in Latin America, particularly in Central America and Mexico, don't have a lot of opportunity to work to support their families. Often the only thing available to them is to work really hard and long on on farms owned by other people. So um the, when the father abandons the family, when the father is murdered, the, the family is really in abject poverty, and they don't have anywhere to live sometimes. Uh, a family member might invite them to live uh, it, it, with them in their home, but that usually doesn't last long, and then they're asked to leave. I've had kids who've had to sleep outside for a number of days or maybe a month with nowhere to live with their family. They're all sad stories. I don't mean to laugh, but I mean, they're just all sad stories like that. Oh, gosh. It's just brutal. I, I I don't know why. I certainly was aware of it in a distant sense, but hearing it from someone who deals with this, you know, face to face with these kids, it's just stunning. So um, what? How? how is it that they come to you? How do they find out about your service? And how do you, especially when they, you know, live in a wide range of counties in the area and probably don't have access to technology or do they? I mean, how, how do you communicate with them? Just describe kind of the process you go through to find them and then to help them. Well, you know, we don't really have to look to find them. There are many of them out there that 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 seek our assistance. I believe the Legal Project, you know, it's a known entity, and so there are other organizations that refer to the Legal Project. 
for my part, it's, it's word of mouth. I'll have represented the client and, and then my phone number gets passed around and, um, and it's really just word of mouth, and, and it's all by telephone. <clears throat> all of my clients do have a phone. They all have phones when they come in um, into the country. And um, initially, they're screened at the legal project to determine whether they qualify for our assistance. And, um, and then uh, when that determination is made, the legal project will, will ask that I represent the child and provide me with the intake information, and then I start from there. So uh, most of my communication is, is, is by phone. If they have an iPhone, which really helps, then of course I can, I can see them when I'm speaking to them. Um, and um, we work by phone and also a lot of the time by text messaging. Eventually, once I prepare all the papers initially for the court application, I will go to their home and I will visit them and I will translate all the documents. And that, and that's it. They'll sign them and and then I will file them with, <clears throat> it could be the surrogate's court, typically a surrogate's court in Albany County. Um, and um, the court will then hold a hearing. Um, it's not a adversarial type of hearing. It's an opportunity for the judge to see the children, question them, confirm the information set forth in the papers. Uh, a lot of the judges are doing it by video now. And um, and then the, the court issues the orders and we, can, we continue on. Then I might really um, do the additional work of the immigration forms by by um, mail and and again by telephone and again I have to translate all those forms and um, and there we go I I get calls from clients um, about all kinds of things that don't really fall within my my representation of them yesterday I had a call from a client that wanted to know if um, if he could uh, give his last name to uh, a, a child who was about to be born uh, that, uh, that he was the father of. I don't know why he wondered that, but that's no problem at all. And I told him that. Um, others may contact me. Um, maybe they don't have any food. Maybe they don't have anywhere to live. When they first and what here, do you do when you get a call like that? Well, what I have done is I go and see them and wherever they are, they might be in an apartment that they are living in with a couple other people, but um, I, I get, I get a, um, a gift card from Price Shopper or some other uh, supermarket and I give it to them and I teach them how to use it so that they can at least have food. And then, you know, they they have an unbelievable ability to meet other immigrants wherever they are. And eventually those immigrants will help them find employment somewhere. Uh, I have helped them uh, get furniture um, through different churches. 
And I have alerted them to uh, food banks. So you have a little bit of social work that you do. Gosh, yeah, I'd say more than a little bit. So as far as the legal process, are you largely successful? Are most of these uh, children able to, you outlined at the beginning the steps that you go through, are most of them able to get the green card? Are most of them able to stay in the United States? How has that played out? Um, yes, I have to say that um, I have been, uh, we've had to wait so long to get green cards that I've been doing this now for almost five and a half, or more than five and a half years. Um, there are very few green cards that I've been able to obtain just because of how long the delay is. But yes, all of my children, um, with the exception of one that we're still waiting for, and we don't know what the delay is, have all been uh, granted special immigrant juvenile status. And, and thankfully to a court decision this year in March, as soon as they are approved for special immigrant juvenile status, they can apply for work authorization. Before that, they had to wait until they applied for permanent residency, and, and that takes years. So now we can apply right away. And yes, they're, they're all getting work authorization. Um, and But, you know, most of them are still waiting for a decision on their application for permanent residency. There's there's a, a huge delay in, in the immigration system uh, with respect to permanent residency, and in particular, um, as as applies to Central Americans and Mexicans. Our time has gone so fast, and you have so much to share. I am just in awe of your work. I I had no idea when I started this call. Um, just. Your level of commitment. I and how many children have you helped through these five and a half years? I've helped, and I'm still helping. Probably over seventy right now. I have, uh, I think, maybe fifty-two active cases that are pending. Uh, I've done some other things too for the legal project, other types of cases. Um, and resolve those. So right now, my my pending cases, I think, are around 52. There's a huge backlog right now. The legal project is attempting to get through um, uh, intake uh, on a number of children. We've had a number of calls right now, children waiting for our services. So I anticipate that my number will go up soon. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Um, I mean, that's got to be more than a full-time job. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> no. do you have an idea of how many hours a week you put in on this? I I don't know. I mean, it, it completely varies. And, you know, and I, I do it at my own pace. But I think I have to report my hours on an annual basis to the court system because as attorneys we are required to do pro bono work. And um, basically, it's somewhere between 600 and 1,000 hours per year that it's 
somewhere in there that that and that I and what what keeps you at it? What sustains you? What what do you draw on to keep doing this? Well, they all need help. <laughs> I love it, but there's so many people that need help, and so few of us do this kind of you know this commitment level of work. <laughs> they all well, need help. I love it. Me. I'm writing this. Because I speak Spanish and because I'm a lawyer, that's, it's it's a perfect uh, set of skills to do this kind of work. So how can I not? <laughs> Gosh. Well, do you have any closing thoughts for our listeners? Um, I would just say uh, I, I, I did a letter to the editor, actually, to the Enterprise. Maybe it was like a year ago, um, talking about immigrants. And I remember it. <laughs> I would just say that there's so much prejudice out there and you were responding um, to one of our letter writers. Just yeah, yes, go yeah. ahead. I, I love these that, thoughts. Just that all these kids, they work hard and they do jobs that nobody wants to do. So mm-hmm. they're, they're contributing members to our society. 